Call to mind the most loving person that you know. And notice what happens when you do that. Notice how you feel inside. Notice if it engenders any quality of uh, appreciation or admiration or maybe aspiration. Notice if there's a reflection of um, I could be like that too. Maybe you are like that for somebody. Maybe somebody is thinking about you in this room. You never know. Or does it also bring up comparing mind? Yeah, well they're Mother Teresa and I'm just, you know, bumbling along (laughs) my own petty grievances and little small-mindedness and And useful to remember that we all have that nature. We all have that potential. We all have goodness in our hearts. We all have love in our hearts. We all have compassion and access to these beautiful heart qualities. We might not live there. We might not abide there. But we certainly have access And we know them from our direct experience in relationship, through parenting, through maybe our work, through our service, through random care for strangers. You know, the way people, uh, life touches you and just opens and gladdens the heart. I was taking an eight-year-old today to the Exploratorium, which was really fun. I think I had as much fun, if not more fun, than they did, um, which was a wonderful, if you haven't been, I'm sure most of you have, just all these great sort of scientific and relational and interesting devices. And um, there was one where you sit in front of a screen and on one side of the screen, someone's looking at you and they're yawning. So if I start yawning, you'll start yawning because you know, we, we resonate, we're empathic like that. And the other side of the screen, uh, you sit in front of and people are laughing hysterically. And no matter how stoic you, you sort of, I'm not going to laugh. <laughs> when people are laughing, you know, belly laughing, you can't help but laughing. Right? And, I, and it's the same true for all human qualities, that they're contagious and that we can influence each other and um, we can be inspired and, uh, and also emulate others too. So one of my favorite Dharma teachers, Gary Lawson, has a cartoon where he's in hell and Satan's coming out of the fiery dens of hell and he's shouting, Mom, no, stop it, no. And on the, in the caption underneath, it says, uh, despite his, all his repeated efforts to prevent his mother from doing so, 
she could never resist the temptation to offer cookies and milk to the accursed. So she's there with a little tray with the cookies and milk and the horns and the tail and, and these recruits are getting their, their milk and cookies. And you know, that, that movement of the heart is, is innate. Right? And, and maybe you find yourself at time just reaching out, extending, caring, loving, even for maybe someone you don't like or you've never seen before, you don't care about, but somehow we're just, you know, we're hardwired that way as a species to care, to, to take care, to love. And as I said, it's not always our go-to emotional response, but it's something that we can cultivate and so in the, in the Buddhist teaching, the understanding of the loving kindness and the heart qualities, the Brahma Viharas, as the Buddha called them, these abodes of the heart, these divine abodes, we can nurture them. And we nurture them and cultivate them because this, they very easily get covered over. They get hurt, we get wounded, we get traumatized, we get afraid, we get stressed. And uh, you know our survival circuitry, flight fight mechanism kicks in, and we're much more contracted in the sense of constricted self, and much less um, accessible. These qualities of kindness, you know, and we all have our stories about why that happened. This is another cartoon. This is from the New Yorker. And there's a mother and daughter, a mother and son, uh, and he's, she's putting him to bed. And he's obviously asking her about whether he love, whether she loves him, and, and or whether her love is unconditional or something, you know, some crazy question like that. And, and she says, "Heavens, no, sweetie, my love for you has tons of conditions." <laughs> Very honest parent. <laughs> so, you know, one of the questions I'm always curious about is what draws you to practice? What draws you to a place like this? To, to meditation? To Buddhism? To, uh, you know, what is it about either, you know, the, the Buddha's life or these teachings um, that, you know, inspired us to, to, to start walking on this path? You know, maybe this is your first step into checking this, this thing out called meditation, Buddhism, insight, meditation, spirit rock, whatever. Maybe you've been here for 30 years, still asking that question, why do I keep coming here? What, what is driving, what is inspiring my practice? This must be something that gets me up the freeway every Monday night. And maybe for some of you it's curiosity, you know, a possibility. I think there's two, there's two movements onto the path. One is we're, we're, we're inspired and we're lured by possibility. Right? We look at someone like the Dalai Lama or these great, you know, spiritual f- leaders, and we with something that resonates with that goodness and the, the vastness of vision and, and human potential. And for many of us, if not most of us, we're more pushed here by usually some affliction, pain, sorrow, stress, anxiety, trauma. Challenge that we were looking for some healing, clarity, resolution, peace with. So I'm just, in just I actually proud to say I sent off my the first draft of my book today to my publisher, and the the book 
title, current title, I think it's going to be the title, is uh, Ending Suffering, Finding Peace. Right? Which speaks to this, this, this duality of, of, of um, movement on the path. Right? The, the lure to peace and also the compulsion to the resolve the suffering and the existential angst that we live in as a human being. So, you know, I think often what draws us on the path is the way our heart gets bound, gets hurt, gets wounded, gets shut down, gets lost in fear or overwhelm or sadness or grief or loss. One of the ways that I see this, and you know, I've been teaching for 20 years probably at this point, and um, is I, you know, and it's been, and I've taught a lot of loving kindness practice on retreats, this beautiful quality of metta. And one of the ways that I see that, that, that pulls us to the path is we're out of touch with our goodness. We're disconnected from our true nature. We don't see the goodness in our own hearts. It's replaced by stories of judgment and criticism or self-hatred or rejection. And to me, it's one of the saddest things that I see when I work with people every day. And I see it when I work with people is I see, you know, I was on the phone today with a student, you know, beautiful human being. And, and we were talking about the loving-kindness practice. And she was talking about how hard it is. She basically sort of checks out when it comes to wishing kindness for herself. It's so hard for many of us, if not most of us, to be loving here to this body, this beautiful, unique body of ours, whatever form and shape it is, this crazy, busy mind of ours, and, and this tender, vulnerable, feeling heart. How many of you can say, I just love myself unconditionally? <laughs> right, you're smirking. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which planet is he on? <laughs> and some of you probably do, but it's, it's rare, I would say, for, for, to, to, for someone to say, I fully accept and love however this is, however I am. Whatever crazy, idiosyncratic, quirky, funky, neurotic self-personality that I am. That is a great source of suffering when we can't love this, when we can't turn to our vulnerability, to our deficiency, to our loneliness, to our fear of aging, to whatever it is that, that, that's you know, tormenting us, loneliness. You know, my last book was the book on, on the inner critic and I wrote that because it's such a profound obstacle to well-being. Rather than wishing ourselves, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be loved, may I be free, whatever your phrases are, we're listening to the critic going, well, you're just stupid, and you're lazy, and you'll never be able to meditate, and why you come to Spirit Rock anyway, you're so, such a fraud, and on and on. And what happens when we listen to that voice? We feel like crap. That's a psychological term. We develop what's called the imposter syndrome. We feel like a fake. 
You know, I, I do a lot of training of teachers, mindfulness teachers and nature, wilderness teachers, and the main thing that I have to work with with those students is I feel like a fraud. Who am I to teach this practice? And then I tell them stories about all the ways that I'm unmindful, <laughs> which are numerous. And I've been teaching mindfulness for 20 years. We're human. We have to love our humanness, accept our fallibility and our vulnerability. Otherwise, we suffer. So in that way, love and loving kindness and metta is a wisdom teaching. It's a hard teaching, but it's a wisdom teaching in that it's a reduction, it reduces suffering. Why would anyone come to watch my films? I can't even act, says the most Oscar-nominated actress, Meryl Streep. John Steinbeck once wrote, I can't, I can't, I don't even know how to write. Why would people read my books? Some of you are thinking, God, I've been doing this for 25 years and I can't even meditate the same voice. We feel like a fraud. Don't listen to it. Which is why also it's important that we integrate mindfulness with kindness. Because mindfulness, as I was pointing to in the beginning of the meditation, is the practice of, of showing up and bearing witness and being present to our experience as it is. Not how we want it, not how we like it, not how we think it should be, but how it is. You come to a spirit rock and you're all excited, great, you know, get to meditate. You're all excited. And then after five minutes, right? I look around, I see half of you asleep. It's okay, it's like good, people need to nap. May you be happy. May you wake up for the loving kindness instructions at the end. I'll raise my voice a little just to see, make sure you're present. Right? We have to meet ourselves as we are. We come, we're, you know, we've been thinking about Spirit Rock all day at work and coming to get there and all these nice people and this beautiful land and we get to meditate and then we start thinking, oh, that work problem. Yeah, if I just, now if I do that strategic meeting tomorrow and then if I meet with my supervisor and then, and we're just planning our work day tomorrow. We spend the whole day trying to get to Spirit Rock and then we spend the, the whole time Spirit Rock at work. So it's humbling. Practice is humbling. Right? And therefore very easy to judge and reject ourselves rather than be kind to ourselves and be forgiving of ourselves. So next time you fumble tonight before you get in the car even Whatever that is, whatever your version of fumbling is, spacing out, falling asleep, slamming the door in someone's face, I don't know, whatever you do, taking your seventh cookie, um, can you be kind to yourself? Practice is humbling. Life is humbling. Requires kindness, not harshness. And it sounds so simple. You know, and yet the, the, the details of our day, 
however blessed and abundant and, 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 and you know, how well our life is going, right? Conditions, right? And if you're here at Spirit Rock, you're living in pretty good conditions compared to the 99% of the world, probably. Still, you know, life is life, and bodies are bodies, and minds are minds, and suffering is suffering. Small or large. So then we come to do the practice, the loving-kindness practice, where we're using phrases that express our wish in a very concrete way, as a, as a vehicle. The Buddha mostly talked about radiating these qualities of love and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. Just sit and abide, pervading all quarters of the world, above and below, in all directions, with loving kindness. Off you go. I can feel the heat of your loving kindness radiating, right? Or not, you know. Not so easy. So we use phrases because it's hard just to sit and abide loving the whole world. Right? That's a sort of advanced practice. We can grow our way into it like, as we grow into any practice. So the phrases are like training wheels that allow us to come back to the intention, may you be well, or may I be happy, and may we be peaceful, and may you be free of suffering, and may I love myself just as I am, and may you be free. And these phrases are just touchstones that we repeat over and over as a way to remind ourselves of this intention and this orientation. Right? And I love this practice because it's portable. Right? You can be sitting in the most boring meeting at work and you can be doing loving kindness. You can be sitting stuck in traffic as I'm sure half of you were on the 101 heading north tonight. And instead of hating all the people in front of you, you could be wishing them, may you get to where you're going on time. May you be happy. And you look in the wing mirror and someone's, in your, in your rear view mirror and someone's frustrated because you're in front of them because you are now at traffic. We forget that we're traffic. <laughs> and we always talk about traffic as those people getting in my way. May you be happy. May we all get to where we're going on time. But sometimes we start the practice and we're very tired and we say weird things. Have you noticed that in loving kindness practice? When you try and doing when you're tired, may I be nappy and wacky. No, may I be happy and may I be filled with peas. No, may I be peaceful. May I be filled with greed, I used to say. No, may I be free from greed. You know, sometimes we do this practice or you hear about it and it just feels dry. It just feels numb. You're just saying these phrases and you don't feel anything. You know, What's the point? Maybe well, maybe happy. Maybe well, maybe. When I, was, I first learned this practice in England, and one of my teachers said, just say the fat phrases as quick as you can. Get as many in as you can in the practice. Maybe well, maybe happy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's like doing nice through the road. I used to have rosary races with my brother because I was raised Catholic. It would lie in bed, maybe. <laughs> It doesn't work. That's just a bunch of words. It's a mental chatter. It doesn't do anything. So you want to say the phrases with intention. You want to slow them down. Think about the person or yourself. May you be well. May you be really well. May you be happy. Right? So, so, that, so my, my, my I mean, orientation to the 
practice is, can I say this one phrase to this one person genuinely? Can I genuinely say, may you be free of suffering? Yeah, I can say that. And then you say it again. And you say it again. And it's this purification practice. You're like polishing the stone of kindness. And of course, what happens when you do that is we, it brings up what gets in the way of, of that heart flowing. You know, you're extending kindness to your friend, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, I love you, you're a great person. Yeah, but you didn't return my call last week. In fact, you never returned my calls. I don't know, I mean, you were my best friend, but suddenly I'm actually a little annoyed with you. Oh, look at that, I've got a little closure in my heart around how people relate to me. It's a little obstacle. The practice of kindness in this, in this context is a boundless quality of love. So what, where this practice is so helpful is it reflects back to us where, we're lim- where that love is limited. And our love is, we have all kinds of conditions, just like on that cartoon. My love for you has all kinds of conditions, my love. Like when you leave a mess in the kitchen, my heart contracts. Doesn't really, but it could. You know. You know, think about the loved ones that you live with. Right? Think about the ways that your heart shuts down because they leave their socks lying around or whatever. You know. You know, so one of the obstacles that comes up a lot when we start to try and hold ourselves particularly with a sense of benevolence is our conditioning. And there's a, we have a lot of cultural and religious conditioning that it's not okay to, to wish oneself with unconditional love and regard. It's a funny, funny cultural norm that we're living in that to wish oneself well is considered often selfish and self-indulgent. To meditate is often considered selfish and self-indulgent. I was just writing in my book the other day that um, when I started meditating in 1984 in northern England, and I went, you know, nobody had ever even heard of meditation, uh, never mind practiced it. So I'd go home and I'd, it'd be New Year's and everyone was drinking and... and uh, and they say, well, why are you doing that meditation if it's so selfish? It's so self-absorbed. Navel-gazing, I've seen those Buddha statues, they just look at you. And it would be fine for them to get slaughtered drunk for two weeks over the holidays in Ibiza or somewhere you know, in Spain. But, uh, but to go on retreat and to cultivate love and kindness was considered selfish. I thought that was rather strange logic. Or we, you know, as we cultivate this quality of kindness, we start to hear the critic's voice more. Either the one I just said earlier, the imposter, who do you think you are? I know what you're really like, you're not that kind. You say, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, but I know what you're really like. You want them to fail. You want them not to outshine you. As, was it um, oh, forget that story it disappeared 
So what happens is that we purify the heart as we start to see the conditionality. We start to see the limits of our capacity to love. And this is a good thing. Right? We think it's a bad thing to see the limits, but actually we want to see where do I shut down? Right? We shut down in lots of different ways. We have, we have our, our metta is what um, some call uh, love with an agenda. I will love you if you meet these certain conditions, if you treat me in a certain way, if you espouse these political views, if you do what I think you should do, I'll love you. And if you don't, well, maybe my heart will be a little closed. Or we have a certain sector of people that we love, and then everybody else is other. Right? You know how we, how we other people? We make other, you know... So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a soccer fan, right? So any other fan of another team is other. And since my pokey little soccer team is small, it's a lot of othering to do. And since my soccer team is also terrible, it accentuates the othering because I'm also mad that we keep losing and they keep beating us. This happened on Saturday against Chelsea. Anyhow. At home, I just want to add a homes, you know, anyhow. Or we are hard contracts because people have different political views to us. Right? Don't need to say much more about that. Right? There's a whole lot of othering goes on because people have different political opinions or different political allegiances. Right? They may be very good, lovely human beings, but because they vote or you know, support certain politicians, we close our hearts to, you know, a good section of the population. Or we think it will make us too soft if we're too loving. I teach a lot of these practices in companies and, and managers worry, you know, if, I, how, if I'm going to be loving and compassionate, how am I going to make hard decisions? How am I going to give someone a difficult performance review? How am I going to fire somebody? How am I going to make difficult decisions? Being loving doesn't mean being nice. Being loving doesn't mean being soft. Sometimes being loving is fierce. Sometimes it's confronting truth and injustice. Sometimes our heart shuts because people have hurt us. This is probably one of the hardest obstacles to overcome. Or are currently hurting us. I was with a dear friend recently and um, her daughter is, um, you know, in that age of middle teens and, um, you know, hard. And, um, you know, I can see the, you know, how her heart gets so, so hurt and, 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 and withdraws to protect from, from the pain. You know, hard to keep the heart open when someone is verbally dissing you every day as teenagers are very want to do. Or our heart closes because we're afraid of things. Like when I'm camping out in the Sierras and I'm hearing a bear sniffing around my tent. Right? The Buddha taught loving kindness to, for monks and nuns practicing in the forest to extend their hearts when they got afraid with the tigers or the spirits or whatever, bandits. Right? But when, when you can smell the bear outside your tent and they're smelly, 
it's hard to, you know, may you be happy and find another tent to go sniff. (laughs) May you be well fed and go to the lake and get a drink and or ticks. You know, I remember walking uh, on the trail along here uh, on my way to room I was staying in and uh, there was this long blade of gla- grass leaning into the path and at the end was the tick, you know, just waiting. <laughs> take me, take me, I'm yours. And I felt this kind of strange fondness for the tick, like it's just doing its tick thing. You know, I don't like them and I don't want them on my body, but it's trying to be happy and, you know, don't have to give him my arm, but, you know, may you be happy and, you know, go away. So, question for you, where does your love have room to grow? Where does your love have room to grow? Or another way I put this to students when they're dealing with something difficult is, how can I turn towards this with love? Right? Whatever difficulty, stress, challenge, struggle that we all have right, in our lives, how do I turn, how, do I, how can I be more loving towards this? And that doesn't mean being a doormat, it doesn't mean being, you know, putting oneself in harm's way, it doesn't mean, um, you know, putting up with abusive, negative behavior, I don't mean anything like that, but just what is it to turn uh, with more kindness to, you know, maybe you have some chronic back spasms going on or some, you know, flare-up of a condition that you thought had subsided and said, oh, not that again. What would it be to love that? What would it be to love your partner who, you know, shows up in ways that are, you know, challenging for you, threatening when they feel scared or vulnerable? So what I love about the, the, the purity of this practice is it points to the boundlessness of our nature. Right? That we have this amazing capacity to love. Probably way more than we think we do. You know, how many times have you been in situations that have been, you know, maybe somebody you know, got critically injured and you're in you're in the emergency you know, outside the emergency room and or you're tending to someone you don't know that well who's really sick and you find that there's much more capacity to care and to love than you ever realized. We have that potential. This is from Naomi Shihab Nai. The Arabs used to say when a stranger appears at your door feed them for three days before asking who they are where they've come from and where they're headed. That way they'll have enough strength to answer. Or by then you'll be such good friends you don't even care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts, here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone puts on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. That's simple. Offering kindness to a stranger.
what's interesting is, you know, the, the way our um, neural circuitry works, we feel better when we're caring. We feel better when we're compassionate. We feel better when we're kind. It lights up the happiness centers. It feels good to love. It feels good to care. It feels good to express that. So we have some good motivation to orient in that way. And we also have circuitry that's wrapped up around ourselves and self-preservation and all of the all of our stories and narratives and ruminations and so mostly we miss the world going by because we're so self-absorbed. So so I want to speak a little to how this relates to ourselves, how we turn towards ourselves. How many people have a hard time loving themselves? Come on, there's more than you than that, I know. Yeah, it's a lot. Right? I'd say at least half the room, and then the other half the room would just being polite or something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, takes takes practice. You know, when I started practicing, I hated myself. I had a lot of self-hatred, a lot of self-judgment, a lot of great material from my book on the critic. And, um, and I, you know, I learned this practice in this little center in London in 1984, five, four, and um, and it seemed really weird. Why would you want to do that? May I be well? May I be happy? May I be peaceful? May I be free? But it sort of struck a chord. It's like. Oh, that's really radical. And then to extend that to others. You know, I was raised Catholic and very, very, um, very uh, impressionable to some of uh, Jesus' teachings, particularly around loving one's neighbors. Even though I complained to my mother when we were in Bible study, I said, I don't like my neighbors. (laughs) Do I have to love them? (laughs) Really? How do you do that? To which there was not much of an answer. And then I appreciated these teachings because it actually gave some practical tools. Oh, you can cultivate the heart by these kind of practices, these purification practices, where at the beginning it feels flat and dry and boring and hard. And over time, you can start to connect with it with a lived sense of, oh, I actually do really care for this person. I can feel it as I say these wishes to them. And when I see them, I feel, because I've held them in my heart, in my meditation, I actually feel more connected to them. Easier to love. But harder here. For myself, I found that I had this frozenness, frozen heart. Like it felt frozen. Anybody feel that? This is numbness. Yeah, I was in a teaching a course some years ago at IMS on the East Coast and 
I was working with this woman who's a farmer and she said, I've got this nut in my heart, this, this stone. And so we did some inquiry into it and she said, well, it's like a walnut. It's dense, hard, hard shell, you know, brittle. And that's, that's, that's what's in my heart. And it doesn't feel very warm or hospitable. And um, there was a lot of pain wrapped around, a lot of tears. And so she, she shed a lot of tears during the retreat. And I couldn't help thinking of the, the tears were like rain on the heart, the, the softening the, the hard soil that the, this walnut was baked in. And then towards the end of the retreat, we had another meeting and she talked about the, the walnut cracked open and a little seedling had sprouted. This, this dense, hard pain, coldness, self-hatred began to soften a little. It's what I, what I noticed in my practice. It took some, took some years to, um, to start to really open to myself. And for me, my doorway then, as it is now, is nature. One of the places that I, it was easier for me to access a sense of love, both for the, for the world around me and for myself, was nature. Anybody else feel that? Anybody find nature is a, right? Yeah, I notice people, you know, just adoring the turkeys and you know, seeing the fawns down feeding on the grass down there. And, the, you know, it's hard not to fall in love which is why I'm a big advocate for people going outside because it's one of the easiest places that we, in a way, give ourselves permission to love, whether it's an oak tree or a swallow or a little bee crawling out of a flower. And it tenderizes the heart. You know, having been writing these last few months, I find staring at my laptop 10 hours a day does not open my heart. (laughs) My brain goes numb, my body doesn't exist, and my heart is closed. Right? And then when I go for a walk outside, and it takes you know, 15, 30 minutes just to sort of arrive, feel like I'm alive in my body, and then I start smelling, I notice the trees and the light and the fog, and like, oh, right? and I feel like I'm coming alive. It's from Joanna Macy, not Joanna Macy, uh, Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only, have to let, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the soft, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the trees and the mountains and rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So sometimes the, the heart softens when we feel, we go outside in the woods and the, these meadows and the hills and we feel a sense of homecoming or a sense of safety or ease or naturalness. Our heart just gets kindled by the beauty, by the sacredness. 
as we tenderize our heart, some things that arise out of that, one of the things that we can start to see is a little more appreciation and respect and care for our body. Mostly we treat our body like a machine. We don't notice it unless it's hungry or horny or um, needs to pee or something. needs to sleep. And, and then when we actually bring loving kindness to this body, it's like, wow, this is an amazing thing that I happen to inhabit that does all these mysterious, miraculous things like see and hear and love. This is from Byron Katie. She says, I'm happy to be the 63-year-old woman. This is probably 10 years ago, I imagine. I love that I weigh 160 pounds. I love that I'm not any smarter than I am. I love that my skin is getting wrinkled and loose. Okay, hands up. How many people can say that? Oh, nobody. Okay, all right. Moving right along. I love that some mornings I'm almost blind and there's just a haze of world and I can barely see where I'm going. I love where my hands have been put and I love how I'm breathed and positioned and angled. That's called deep (laughs) self-love. When we can really just honor this body for all it is, as however it ages and wrinkles and slows down or gets sick and gets injured and whatever things that it does. That's where we, you know, can we look in the mirror and say, welcome, welcome, this too, this too, this growing gray hair, this more, you know, lined face, this sagging body or whatever it is. I love that I'm 160 pounds. I love that my skin is wrinkled and loose. A friend of mine has this practice, I think I've shared this before, where I think a therapist who, and she also had a lot of not so benevolent feelings towards herself, would, would ask her to look in the mirror every day and say, good morning. No, she'd wake up and say, good morning. As opposed to, you know, it's late, you've already slept in, you're such a slob, God, you're such a loser. You know, I don't, I'm not sure what she'd say, but you, know, you can fill in the details. And instead, the, the instruction was just to say, good morning. Good morning. Like in a nice, like you'd say to a friend, hey, good morning. Look in the mirror, good morning. Good morning to you all, all puffy-eyed and bleary. And <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> you look like you need some coffee. <laughs> It'll all be better after some coffee. Good mo- And then she added, good morning, I love you. She'd lie in bed, wake up, good morning, I love you. Look in the mirror, good morning, I love you. Go home tonight cleaning your teeth. Good evening, I love you. See what happens. <laughs> Maybe just start with good evening. (laughs) Have a good sleep. And as we nurture the soil of our own heart and we nurture that warm heartedness towards ourselves, it can't help but spill out and be more affectionate with others. 
Right? When, when, we're, when we're being kind here, when we're sensing our goodness here, when we're taking care of the body, taking care of you know, our heart, we're going to be a little more respectful, a little more kind, a little more patient with others. It's just how it works, in my experience. We notice that? But if I'm judging and harsh and rejecting myself, I'm probably going to do the same to someone else. Whether it's the poor person on United Airlines I was calling this, this weekend several times, or you know the person in traffic who can't hear me. is also from no this is also from Mary Oliver the wild geese was from Mary Oliver this is uh, I love this poem it, it, so it speaks to what happens the fruit of our actions and I, I hear this um, with certain uh, stories I've heard with people with um, family members with Alzheimer's but also just certain characters that, that pervade as we get older, even though many other things drop away. And what we practice, we become. And so some of the goodness that we practice is often the very thing that we're left with at the end of our life. This is from Mary Oliver, uh, called the poem's called Roshani Ray, which I assume is her mother, but I don't know. On cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, would spread newspapers over the porch floor. So, she said, the garden ants could crawl underneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for myself? But being so struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left, that loving. What if that's all we had left in the twilight of our years with just that loving orientation? That's not going to happen if we've just been practicing judging and bitching all our lives. Right? It's a nice idea. Right? It comes from the fruit of practice. It comes from the fruit of being kind, of being patient, of being caring, of being loving. Or, or at least orienting that way. And the Buddha talked about inclining the mind, inclining the heart. Right? What would it be like to incline the heart to giving someone the benefit of the doubt? What would it be like to incline the heart to forgiving rather than condemning? What would it be like to incline the heart to see that when someone's causing suffering, they're suffering? So not rejecting them for the suffering they cause, but understand the deeper cause of the pain that they're in. I want to share another piece from Naomi Shihab Nye. Some of you have heard this, but it worth bears hearing again. And I like this because I travel a lot, and um, I'm often in airports. And um, airports are not necessarily known to be sort of the abode of loving kindness, but can be. Wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal. After hearing my flight had been detained four hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, doesn't one? This was written after the first Gulf War. 
Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? I told her the flight was going to be delayed, and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the, the woman and spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for medical, major medical treatment the next day. I said, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call them. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I'd stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for fun. Then we called my dad. And he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. <laughs> then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling us about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts, out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. We were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There is no better cookies. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag. Some medicinal thing, some green with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition. Always carry with a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around the gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in the gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. That's the, you know, the, this integration of mindfulness and kindness. The, the mindfulness practice of simply showing up and meeting what is. And meeting it with a kind heart. Right? You know, what would have happened if that woman hadn't had someone who spoke Arabic? Right? It would have been a very desperate evening of panic. Right? All it takes is someone showing up with some presence, some kindness, a little patience. And this whole beautiful experience unfolds. This can happen anywhere. Not all is lost. You know, so we, the, the practice, as you, some of you know, and some of you don't, the practice starts with ourselves and then we extend it to loved ones. I, I reversed it this evening just because it's easier for many people to start with extending, wishing metta, kindness for people that's easy, loved ones, friends. Uh, and then we can add ourselves, hopefully after the heart's been warmed up a little, kindled a little. And then we extend it to strangers, to people, that are neutral people. We don't care about that much. Most of the world to us is strangers. And because they're strangers and because we have no relationship, we don't, we don't have much of a movement in our heart. They're just sort of nameless people. But when we start to include that as part of our as heartfulness, it's actually a beautiful practice. 
we start actually paying attention to all these, this massive humanity that we're around. Start holding them with a little more benevolence, a little more kindness, whether it's in traffic or down a busy street or in Safeways or wherever you happen to be. Just like all these people here, most of these people here to you are probably strangers. May you be happy. What happens when you look, look around the room right now and just silently wish these people to be happy? And just wish 10 people to be happy. And just notice that some people will be wishing you to be happy. And notice how it affects your heart. Right? Usually, probably, it feels good. Right? I don't see many of you going, right? No, it generally feels good to wish others well, even if we don't know them. We never see these people ever again. May you be happy. May you drive home safely. It's free. It's a freebie. It's easy. Ish. Easy-ish. You know, and so when, when our hearts kindle, I think of this practice as, you know, our hearts like kindling, and these practices are the sparks for the kindling. May you be happy is a spark for the kindling. You might say that a hundred times, and only one time actually feel this genuine, like, oh, may you really be happy. But that's practice. And then we, then we extend it to those who are difficult for us whoever is difficult for you in your lives. Anybody not have someone difficult in their lives? <laughs> right. Election cycle coming up, with lots of difficult people on our screens that we don't like, probably. Neighbors, colleagues, family members perhaps that we're estranged from, former loved ones. Right. There's all kinds of people that are difficult for us. Maybe our beloved is the most difficult person that we live with and have to love and stretch and grow into. Our friends can sometimes be our most difficult people. And they become the, again, they become the, the kindling and the grist for how do we stretch. You know, I had this wonderful conversation with a a friend and colleague of mine, um, she uh, belongs to a, a YPO, Young Presidents Organization group, and uh, invited me to come down to do this workshop. And everybody in the group, um, it's, it's gold YPO now, which is the over 50, I think. And, um, and so, and I'm doing a workshop. Well, we weren't calling it this, but this is what I did. We were doing a workshop on, on, on vulnerability and boundaries and uh, disappointment and expectations. And, and then we realized, oh, wait a minute. This is, right, these are, this is middle age. Right? The, 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 the challenge, not just middle age, it comes any time, but um, anyhow, the workshop is formulating into this, into the, basically the Dharma of middle age. The Dharma of aging. How do we meet those conditions of aging, of disappointment, of expectations unmet, of um, declining faculties, or whatever it is? How do we meet that with kindness? 
We're more likely to meet it with kindness if we cultivated kindness, we cultivated compassion. Right? These are beautiful life skills. There's a reason I told that story, but it didn't quite, I didn't quite get to where I was going with that, but maybe it'll come back to me. You know, and when I think of this, this practice of love, it's inseparable from the practice of compassion, which is the, the, when, when our heart meets the pain of the world. And I'm going to give a talk about this another time, but there's a, there's, I was reading this wonderful article in the Times, and um, it was called, I think it was called something like, um, Does Nature Have an Unconscious? Which is, was nothing to do with the, the article. It was, it was to do about... Um, about the, the, the re-arising of eco-psychology and the, re- and, uh, the um, arising of, of various um, new mental health uh, categories that are arising in response to climate change and the sadness and despair that's arising for people because of what's happening to the planet. Right? I've spent the summer hiking in different mountain ranges and every mountain range I go to, it's smoky. Some family members just came down from British Columbia and they drove 12 hours from the Okanagan to Bend and every hour was full of smoke from fires. So this word that Albrecht, an eco-psychologist, coined is called something like, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but salastalgia. Salastalgia. And it's it's a word that uh, speaks to when we go out into nature and we feel, instead of feeling what I would normally feel, which is love and rapture, is sadness, grief, and despair at what's happening. Anybody feel that? Yeah, quite a lot of you. And so, the reason, so dovetailing this into this talk, the, there's a way, you know, the, 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 as we cultivate the heart, we, we inevitably turns to compassion. Right, right, and 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 so the we can fall into despair, or we can also cultivate this quality of compassion that's feeling for the suffering of the world, for the planet, for the forest, for species, for the people who are suffering in it, mostly the poor. And um, you know, this so that quality of heartfulness of compassion is is resilience building. It's a resource in these troubled times. So um, the question I, I, I'd like to leave you with is um, for yourself to reflect on is um, am I being kind? Am I being kind? Just to reflect on that this week as you're with your kids or your spouse or your neighbors or your colleagues or you're at the Giants game or you're stuck in traffic or you're home alone, feeling sad? Am I being kind? Am I meeting this with kindness? Can I meet this with kindness? Not as a judgment if you can't, but as an invitation to what would it be, you know, if we had the Dalai Lama sitting here with us, home alone, in our apartments, feeling sorry for ourselves, how would he relate to this moment? (laughs) Ha, 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 probably. 
who knows? But um, am I being kind? How can I meet this with kindness? What would it be to meet this with kindness? Which has a quality of care in it, has a quality of forgiveness in it, has a quality of surrender in it. This is, I'll close with this quote from Desmond Tutu. Do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of goodness put together that overwhelm the world. Do your little bit of good wherever you are. It's those little bits of goodness, or I'd say kindness, that together overwhelm the world. Okay, so let's just sit for a moment. Just close. Sense your heart. Just call to mind, if there's one way that you may take this practice of kindness, one person, one situation, that you make the intention to bring this quality with you, what would it be? To yourself, to loved ones, to strangers, to political nemeses. Thank you for your intention. I didn't mean to talk so long, but here we are. So, see you. I'm back. I'm teaching here next month. So, be well, be kind, take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.